electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Uh, do you want to make friends? I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to teach, but also entertain, put it into context. Call me, 1-800-743-CNBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. When the market's going down, but nobody knows why, don't think about what you need to sell. Maybe change your perception and think about what you need to buy. Now, I know this is one tough market. Dow tumbling another 491 points. S&P plummeting 2.0%. Hey, NASDAQ plunging 2.98%. But that doesn't mean you should give up on looking for opportunities. But you got to do it carefully. How do you approach a day that's really hideous without much of a negative catalyst other than the average were up and then they went down really fast, scaring everyone into thinking that something bad must be lurking? Well, first you have to ask yourself, is it even worth it to take a chance to buy something? I have to tell you, I think it is. Why? Okay, because you have to expect that there will be what I call mechanical selling on the third to last day of any quarter today. In the old days, you'd see people mark stocks up or down to juice the performance on the last day of the quarter. For most stocks, other than the real mega caps, money managers could come in with guns blazing and take the stocks up, enhancing their own performance. Same thing with the short positions on the downside. You know, it got so ludicrous, so evil, so just mockery that the SEC finally decided to crack down the process. It no longer happens. Now, I know there's much more activity these, these days on the third to last quarter, uh, third to last day of the quarter. I mean, that's what I saw today. Lots of goofy stuff. Money managers dumping losing stocks or locking in gains. One year show the clients that they don't own some of the big losers of the first half. Every little shenanigan. And that is where the opportunity comes in. Of course, before you take advantage of the mechanical selling, you need to have the most up-to-date information. So ask yourself, what's going on in the last 24 hours that would have moved the stock up if it weren't for the gravitational pull of the futures? It's too hard a market to go in with old information. Let's start with a bank stock. Let's start with Morgan Stanley. Why a bank stock? Because if you can find one without a lot of default risk, then you have a great pick in an environment where the Fed's raising interest rates. And the one with the least default risk in New York is Morgan Stanley. 
It's a bank chock full of collateral and any disturbing loss. Last night, after being scrubbed by the federal regulators, Morgan Stanley decided to increase its dividend by 11% and authorized a $20 billion multi-year buyback program. Now, this is only a $136 billion company. That's very substantial. And by the way, it's real. They will stand there and they will buy stock. Why am I certainty about Morgan Stanley? For the same reason I bought it for my travel trust, it doesn't have the same business models the old Morgan Stanley had. It's chiefly about a durable earnings stream from its wealth management and investment management businesses. In other words, the new Morgan Stanley doesn't have the same risky profile as any of the other major banks. And after yesterday's increase, its dividend yields nearly 4%, one of the largest in the land. Plus, it still benefits from the Fed's rate hikes like everybody else in the industry. I think that's a gem you can pick up for much less than you would otherwise. The stock was up a little today. But you know what? On any other day, I think this stock would have traded to the low single-digit 80s. It was that positive, a dividend boost and buyback. Next, really controversial, Disney. Now, here's a stock that's been nearly cut in half from its highs last year. Uh, At one point today, Disney was up big, but then it gave up the ghost once the sell programs kicked in. Why Disney? Because we learned today that China will soon allow them to open up Shanghai Disney, which is instantly additive to the earnings. The CEO, Bob Chapek, knows how to run theme parks. So there's a greater chance that the earnings estimates are too low and will need to be raised for once, not cut. And that is the number one driver of stock prices. Chapek just got a three-year extension this very evening. Maybe that will silence the backbenchers, perhaps have them spend more time with their families. Oh, and while I'm at it, I think it's time for Disney to change the narrative. For the longest time, all anyone focused on here were the declining ESPN numbers. When they went down, which they did with much consistency, the stock got punished, regardless of what else was happening. Then Disney paid way too much for Fox. JPEG had nothing to do with that, in part to generate extra content for the Disney Plus streaming service. Now Disney Plus is treated like ESPN used to be. If it trades on these subscription numbers and Wall Street tends to find them wanting, the stock goes lower. Now, if I were running a show, which, by the way, just you know, because of this commitment I have here, I'm not, I'd start talking about putting a new Disney theme park in the Texas-Colorado corridor. That is the fastest-growing region in America. Now, I know you might think I'm joking, but consider this. The most popular part of Disney, the most iconic division with the best pricing power, is the park business. And it needs a new flagship. Forget Disneyland in California or Disney World in Florida. Give me a Disney universe in New Mexico. It is the land of enchantment. All right, let me give you one more idea. Johnson Johnson. The logic. This company's breaking up into a consumer products, a products business and a separate farm and medical device business. Each of these divisions is on fire. This is a stock that rarely, as we call it, comes in, rarely goes down. So I think a day like today where it's down nearly 3% is a nice buying opportunity. Look at these. Buy, buy. They've all been buying opportunities. Now, you could say it's a bad idea to buy a drug stock in an inflationary environment, but this is not just any old drug stock. J&J is the best breed drug company. It's splitting into two great businesses and a move that will definitely unlock a ton of value in the year 2023. So you've got to take advantage of it now. You can't run from it. Full disclosure, we own Morgan Stanley, Disney, and J&J for the Travel Trust and talk about these names all the time in our morning meeting. We did so today at 1020 on CNBC.com. But there's one more I mentioned today that I think would make a ton of sense in light of the fact that China's beginning to reopen. And this is a shocker, one that I barely talk about, that I am going out on a limb right now on. Starbucks. Right now, Howard Schultz, the temporary CEO, 
going around the world to check in with as many associates as he can. He needs it. He's kind of doing a listening tour uh, in response to the surprisingly successful unionization drive. I think he's addressing many of the day-to-day concerns that have kept Starbucks from performing at its highest level, including, by the way, the day part where they really, really need to figure out how to handle cold drinks. But more importantly, Starbucks has a huge Chinese business, and when China fully reopens, that business is going to grow like crazy. Sometime, I think it'll be bigger than the U.S. presence. Sure, there are still labor issues. I don't think they're going to impact the company's earnings. They're more headline risk, okay? So let me give you the long story short. When you hear China's reopening, I want you to think, Starbucks. Now, these may not necessarily pan out, especially in the short term, but that's why you don't buy stocks all at once. You leg into them gradually, step by step, inch by inch. Buy some now, buy some later. They keep going down. And that is how you build a position. That's how professionals do it. With each of these names, you have good news in your pocket. You have fresh information. It's unlikely you're going to get a negative earnings pre-announcements from any of these companies. That's what makes these stocks viable after an ugly day like today. The bottom line, while this may be a bear market, as I told you, as long as commodity prices come down, these stocks could be winners, which is why you've got to treat ugly moments like this one as buying opportunities. Not for everything. Not even close. But for a select few stocks, it truly is something. Good going on. I like that. How about we go to Lozara in Florida? Lozara. Hi, Jim. Lozara, what's up? Hi. So my boyfriend and I are new to stocks and truly appreciate you and what you do to help people like us understand and make informed decisions and building our portfolios. Oh, thank you. become you. Uncle Jim in our household. Holy cow. Uncle so Jim. You. I feel like I'm in the Haley's. Fantastic. What's going on? <laughs> So my question to you is kind of a two-part question, but it's with regards to the stock that I'm calling about. Um, it started dropping a few weeks ago before the major drops of all stocks, and it's due to the recent lawsuit loss. But the price now seems so great to keep buying into it at 130 a share. What are your thoughts on 3M? And if it's a buy, should I sell my Best Buy shares to purchase more 3M? No, I don't want you to sell your Best Buy. I like Best Buy very much, and she's doing, Corey Barry's great. The problem with 3M is the lawsuits involve uh, a a, a particular kind of ear injury that I happen to suffer from. And I can tell you that it's the type of thing that uh, these are soldiers, not me. I'm fortunate enough that it didn't come on the battlefield for me, that are very sympathetic in the courtroom. And so unless 3M starts winning all the cases, you can't own the stock. Just can't. All right, you have to treat ugly moments like this one as buying opportunities. Not for everything, not even for for many, but for select few stocks that have something going on that you have in your pocket. Man Money tonight, Amazon Web Services is a powerhouse behind some of the world's biggest websites. I'm talking to the head of one of Amazon's largest divisions to see what the future of the cloud could hold. Then, Nike posted a mixed quarter last night. It translated some choppy action today, meaning it went lower. So what should you make of the stock in this tape? I'll give you my take. And you want my take? I'm going to give you my take on JetBlue and Spirit. And, uh, yeah, I got to tell you, if you're a Spirit shareholder, you better listen up. I'm going straight to the source, the CEO of Spirit. I may suggest that you stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. 
With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's talk about the, the house of pain that is Amazon. When these guys last reported, we learned that they overbuilt their fulfillment infrastructure, hired too many people in the assumption that the retail business would stay as strong as it was during the height of the pandemic. Hey, who can blame them? I mean, who knew when we were going to come out of the darn thing? It, but that's weight on the stock, overshadowing a part of the business that I am really excited about. The one that's currently firing on all cylinders, I'm talking about AWS. It's called Amazon Web Services, their cloud infrastructure division. That's the industry leader by far. Amazon Web Services grew at a 37% clip in the first quarter, roughly even with what they put up over the previous 12 months, even though it's much bigger. Operating income, an astounding 57%. No margin problems in the cloud business. As the web services business becomes a bigger piece of the pie, I think investors will stop writing Amazon off as a retail play, especially as this is a very sticky recurring revenue business. You know what? The more I worked on this piece, the more I realized the business of AWS standalone might be worth most of this company at this point, which is why I am maintaining a position for my charitable trust after selling some higher earlier in the year. Now, earlier today, we had a chance to speak with Adam Solipsky, and he is the CEO of Amazon Web Services. It was on the sidelines of Nasdaq's Technology of the Future Conference at Times Square. You want to look at this. It's really interesting. Well, Adam, here we are at the NASDAQ, and I think you've got some incredible things you're doing with the NASDAQ that many of our investors might discover is pretty positive. Absolutely. We have a fantastic relationship with, uh, with NASDAQ. Uh, actually, dates back to 2008 when uh, they were one of our first enterprise case studies with this application called Market Replay. Uh, and if you fast forward, uh, Adina Friedman announced at our reInvent conference last December that NASDAQ was going to move its markets to the cloud. 
as starting with, uh, with, with options markets this year, not, not something to, in the far future, and uh, over the next couple of years, moving the rest of the markets to the cloud. And that is the workload that a decade ago people said would never move to the cloud. I was going to say that uh, we always knew the cloud as being something that, that the financial companies would never trust. That is obviously the biggest piece of business out there you could get. And I think this is, the, this is the great foothold that you need. Well, I, I think the world's now seeing that the security's there, the availability's there. Uh, we've now gotten the latency there, and obviously, particularly for markets, uh, you've got to have the latency. And most important, the, the agility and the innovation that you unlock just cha- changes, transforms the organization. And financial services companies, like others, are, are seeing that and seeing those benefits. Well, I, I think we should check in just in, uh, on your business. I mean, this is a business that I have found that I was, nothing's recession-proof, but people are worried about a recession. And I look at your business and think, I would turn to you if I felt that we were going to have a recession and say, Adam, please figure out a way to save me money. Yeah, I, I think uh, d- d- demand continues to be strong. Uh, lots of new customers signing up and existing customers expanding. And it is interesting. I mean, it's a different time and place. But if you go all the way back to uh, the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, uh, I, I think it actually was, was good for our business in that so many companies didn't have CapEx available. There's no capital. And so they turned, but they still had, you know, OpEx. They could have operating expense. So they, they turned to that. And that's what the cloud's all about is the flexibility to, uh, uh, to burst up and burst down and uh, wax and wane your capacity. And, and so we actually got a lot of new customers using the cloud back in that time. And I think uh, in any uncertain economic environment, you saw it in the pandemic, see it now with supply chain disruptions, mm-hmm. uh, inflation, et cetera. With that uncertainty, uh, people often cut back on the capital expense and uh, we become a very natural place to run your IT and run your workloads. Right, well, even in the times since I've met you, we've got uh, Azure, we have Google. I mean, if I was on this uh, Oracle call with <laughs> Larry Ellison, and these are formidable competitors, and yet you are still up 37%. Once again, you are incredibly lucrative. And then I found this figure of an $88.9 billion backlog. So obviously, the other guys may be taking something, but they're not taking your share. Well, it's a very competitive market segment, right. as, as it should be. Um, it, basically, most all of IT over time we believe will move to the cloud. And with that kind of an attractive opportunity, you're going to have strong competition. But we've continued to do well. We've continued to uh, build and add more customers you know, faster than anybody else because we have the, the broadest and the deepest uh, set of services and capabilities. And I, I think that growing backlog that you mentioned uh, is really um, shows that customers are forming long-term relationships with us. They're, they're uh, signing agreements for, for multiple years, which is great principally because it, it just shows that we're building trust together. Right. It shows that we're, we're in it together for the long term, and that kind of changes how you do business together. You know that on good days and on bad days, you'll, you'll be in it together, and, and that just allows you to take risks together and to innovate together. And I know Goldman Sachs with you, they are taking a lot of risks that they had not gone with before. They need someone like you. They do not have the internal technology to do it. Well, uh, we, we love working with Goldman as well. So uh, David Solomon, Solomon and I uh, together at our reInvent conference 
uh, last December announced uh, the Goldman Sachs uh, financial cloud for data on AWS. Very and so, you know, it's one of Goldman's moves into obviously the fintech space, and uh, it's a really exciting offering. Uh, and they've got great capabilities around data and around analytics, and putting that together with the AWS capabilities, um, it sounds like it's a great idea for their customers. Oh, definitely. And they, they are, that's, that's a big ramp up for them. Now, Adam, uh, you have cut price over and over 115 times since AWS was founded, which is going to cut price, make a better deal for whoever you're, you're dealing with. Now, you now work with Andy Jassy. Andy Jassy wants to have the best quarters, obviously, wants to do what's right for shareholders. At some point, does he say, look, you know, enough of the price cuts? Or does he say, yes, that's exactly what we need to do? I think we have no intention of, of, of changing course. You know, I, I think uh, all across Amazon and, and certainly also for the history of AWS, we have time after time, as you said, cut price, the vast majority of times in the absence of any particular competitive pressure to do so. We just believe that we can, you, you innovate differently if you insist on having a low cost structure. You think about the world differently and we're just gonna keep on innovating to drive our own costs lower and we're gonna continue to pass those savings uh, on to customers. And by the way, I think we've seen over the past 16 years of AWS that you will see dramatically more adoption as you prove to customers that you're here for them and part of being here for them is lowering their cost. Well, how big can AWS become as part of the mosaic of Amazon? Uh, well, I, I think we've, uh, we've always said that in the fullness of time, it's possible that AWS could become uh, the largest business uh, at Amazon. Now, Amazon has other large and great businesses, right. and so it could, take, it could take a while for us uh, to get there, but I, I think that possibility is there. If you look at, uh, essentially, IT is going to move to the cloud, right. and it's going to take a while. Uh, you've seen maybe only, call it 10% of IT see, today move to the cloud. I keep trying to So tell it's still people. day one. It's still early, right. despite, the, despite the fact that we're now a $74 billion uh, run rate business in AWS. The most of it's still yet to come, and so it just shows you how early we are in this journey. I'm so glad you said that. I mean, so many people say, Jim, you keep flogging the cloud. No, it's early. I was out with our friend uh, Mark Benioff last week, who you work with. It's just so obvious to me how early we are. And that's why I'm so thrilled that you came on Mad Money and tell it once again exactly where we are. That's Adam Slipsky's Amazon Web Services CEO, AWS, just an engine for growth. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim, as always. Coming up, see if they just did it. Kramer runs down Nike earnings next. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
In last Friday's game plan, I told you to keep an eye on Nike's earnings report, which we got last night. Nike's results are always important. This is a big company that has a great read on the state of the consumer. And because they have this kind of weird fiscal calendar, they give you an early glimpse into the next earnings season. But this time, oh, geez, there was a lot going on. Uh, you get insight into the global supply chain crisis. You get a read on the lockdown Chinese economy because they do a huge amount of business in China. So, so what did we learn? Well, this is a complex piece. That doesn't mean turn it off for heaven's sake. But if you only looked at the stock price down 7% today, you'd think that Nike reported a real stinker of a quarter. That holy cow, right? What a bad one. No. The truth is a little more complicated. And it's a lot less negative than Wall Street seems to assume, which tells me you got to stay tuned to my conclusion. Why? First, you got to understand the context. After roaring during the darkest days of the pandemic, Nike peaked in the second half of last year. What a run, huh? In September, we started hearing about manufacturing disruptions in Vietnam, where they've also been able to, you know, not just China, they make things in Vietnam. And that was courtesy of the Delta variant. Then the stock charged to a new high in November when the whole market topped out, especially the COVID winners. Oh, the halcyon days before the Fed got tough. When Nike reported its next quarter last December, the results were good outside of China, but management refused to raise their full-year forecast, and so the stock got punished. That punishment continued into the new year. This is a lot of punishment, guys. Really bad. The last time we got results from Nike in March, the quarter was actually solid. So large top and bottom line beat, coupled with much better numbers out of China. But unfortunately, that came just a week before China started going back into lockdown, which immediately put Nike's big Chinese business, and it is gigantic, on ice. Then we started hearing real bad news from the retailers as Wall Street began to worry about it, the Fed-mandated recession that we talk about so much. It's not so great for expensive sneaker sales. So... This stock has been a dog nearly all year. Going into last night's earnings report, almost all the commentary on Nike was negative. If you look at the analyst preview notes, there were 11 price target cuts and one outright downgrade. Of course, most of the underlying commentary was more positive than you'd expect. This is a phenomenon we've been talking about for a while. The analysts who were stuck with unrealistically high estimates and price targets need to get back in touch with reality by slashing their numbers, and they usually do that right around earnings time. With that in mind, let's talk about what really happened last night. You probably didn't hear it. I did, and it's pretty amazing. Now, first, we look at the headline numbers, mixed back. Nike sales and earnings came in higher than expected. They actually posted a 10-cent earnings beat off an 80-cent basis. Stock flew up when people saw that because they didn't bother to listen. But the bulk of the earnings beat came down to a favorable tax item. So that's not worth anything. More important, Nike's gross margin, and this is really what matters for people who own the stock, what they make after the cost of goods sold declined to 45%. Wall Street was looking for 46.6%. Some of that's the China hit. Some of it's the freight and logistics costs, although that was partially offset by price increases. But the bulls were hoping that Nike would have more pricing power, and they wanted to see higher margin direct-to-consumer business more than offset their higher costs. And I was surprised. That did not happen. In terms of geography, North America was down 5% year-over-year. Not good. Europe, the Middle East, and Africa up 9%. Good. Greater China down 19%. Mm. With Asia, Pacific, and Latin America up 15 
By the way, those international numbers, though, would have been much, 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 much better on a constant currency basis. Remember what Mark Benioff said from Salesforce, that the, that the yen is just tanked? Um, all of those currencies are down versus the very strong dollar. Normally, it's easy to asterisk currency fluctuations, but not this time. Again, I think these numbers are just, I'm going to call them only a mixed bag. They're not all bad. Nike's doing very well in Europe, the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, Asia Pacific, outside of China. China's terrible. That's because of the shutdown. And everyone knew it would be an ugly quarter going in. But I was discouraged with North America and Nike's largest segment. I, I need to know more about that. If you go by product categories, you see that footwear's holding up just fine, while apparel accounted for most of the week. It's down 6%. That surprised me. Making things more complicated, the guidance was not great. Nike's forecasting low double-digit revenue growth for the 2023 fiscal year, but only on a constant currency basis. They expect 400 basis points of foreign exchange headwinds, which implies actual revenue growth in the high single digits, a little weaker than the analysts were hoping for. As for the gross margins, Nike says they'll be flat to down 50 basis points, which is substantially worse than what the analysts were expecting. If the full-year forecast wasn't bad enough, Nike's guidance for the current quarter was even uglier. Huge margin compression, huge currency hit. I think that was the biggest reason for today's sell-off. Now, I always tell you not to jump to conclusions based on the earnings release. you got to listen to the conference call to know what's really going on. And it was a very convoluted conference call, very unusual for Nike. Very hard for me to get through. Had to read it twice, read it last night, read it again this morning. Just wasn't sure of what the drama was here. At the moment, Nike's biggest problem is China. But the China commentary was more encouraging than I feared. Nike's Nike's maintaining its brand leadership in the People's Republic, and they said they saw better traffic in specific trade zones where the lockdowns were lifted. As CEO John Donna, whom I greatly admire, said during the Q&A, We're taking a medium to long-term view, and we're as confident today as we have ever been. And coming out of the lockdown, we're seeing increased energy from the Chinese consumer. I like that. The second biggest problem is that gross margin compression. Now, if not for the huge hit from the China uh, lockdown, Nike says the gross margins would have been up 100 basis points thanks to the strength of that direct-to-consumer business that I mentioned earlier, where they use digital sales to cut out the retail middleman. But they're still taking a big hammering from those ocean freight costs. The cost of the cost of moving a container on a ship is up fivefold from 2019, but it is going lower. Now, here's here. This is the crescendo here. Unfortunately, while CFO Matthew Friend, smart man, believes these costs are transitory, he doesn't see the situation going back to normal. And then here's the quote that ended all hope for a few years. No. Not great. That was the low point of the entire call. In a do-over, I honestly think he would have modified those comments, and I welcome him to come on the show to do that do-over. Finally, Nike sounded very pleased with the overall level of demand for its products, at least outside of China. Of course, the guidance was disappointing, as I mentioned. So this morning, the analysts cut the price targets across the board. The stock got crushed. I'm not going to tell you this was a great quarter. No, they had too many flies on it. But, and this is a big but. I don't think the results were as bad as today's 7% decline when you include the fact that the stock's been going down, as I showed you in the chart, forever. The long-term story remains intact, and I think the China commentary was more bullish than not. Let me put it another way. Last week, I told you that the earnings estimates in the aggregate were too high, needed to come down before the market finds a sustainable bottom. This is what that looks like. Overnight, Wall Street went from expecting Nike to earn $4.35 to expecting only $3.90. Here's the bottom line. This is, like I said, it was a complicated story. But now Nike has reset expectations. I think the downside risk is baked into the stock. Any potential upside? Absolutely not. 
Doesn't necessarily mean that Necky's a screaming by here, but I see something with a much better risk reward than it's getting credit for. And I would indeed start a position tomorrow if, I were, if it were to go down from here. Slowly, but yes, it is time. Tyler in Vermont. Tyler. Hi, Jimmy Chill. I love the show. Booyah. Thank you, man. I've been chilling with gardens instead of attacks. But I'll attack if I really kind of, you know, if I'm angry, I'll go after a couple of people. You know me. What's up? Yeah, so I've got a question about uh, Peloton because uh, they recently changed their business model and they're going to add in those setup fees for installing the bikes and they're also increasing the price of the subscriptions while they're losing many customers. So my question for you, Jimmy, is can they turn the company around after it's dropped from 125 this year down to below 10? Okay, well, there's good news and bad news here. The good news is they got a real heavyweight guy who's running the company now, uh, Barry McCarthy. The bad news is Everyone's gunning for it. I mean, look, I was looking at the mirror the other day. I think the mirror, which is, by the way, owned by Lululemon, is absolutely fabulous. I think that the people want to go back to the classes and, uh, like my wife does. And you know what's back on the Peloton? Yeah, you know what's back on the Peloton? The bras. The bras and the shirts just hanging there. What can you do? It's better than a clothesline. Sorry. All right, if you looked at Nike's stock price alone, you would think that the company reported a real stinker of a quarter. But it's much more complicated than that. I think Nike now at last, for after down, 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 has a much better risk reward. Hey, look, you're not buying it here. You're buying it here. Much more money ahead, including my exclusive with Spirit Airlines. Now, you probably don't, don't want to think you should vote with what they want to do, but they're caught in the middle of a bidding war. I'm getting the latest on where the deal stands, and I'm also going to give you the latest as the way I see it stands. Then it's okay if you, if you don't understand why we have to obsess over the Federal Reserve, but I'm sharing some wisdom from my pathetic past that will make you uh, at least make some sense of what the Fed's impact is on the market. And, of course, all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the lightning round. For the past few months, Frontier Group and JetBlue have been caught in a dramatic bidding war for Spirit Airlines. That's an ultra-low-cost carrier. And, man, that war is coming to a head this week. It started in February when Frontier and Spirit announced their plans to merge. But every time they came to terms, JetBlue steps in with a higher unsolicited bid forcing Frontier to raise its offer repeatedly. In fact, JetBlue did it again just yesterday. It's hard to keep up with this one. As usual, Spirit shot them down and said they're sticking with Frontier. Of course, the great irony of this bidding war is that I don't know if the Biden Justice Department is going to allow either airline to acquire Spirit, although it's certainly a lot more likely they'll permit a Spirit Frontier merger than a Spirit JetBlue one. We're going to go into that. The Biden administration is stamped by former Obama people, and one of the Biggest antitrust regrets is that they permitted too many airlines merging in the wake of the financial crisis. But I'm always willing to learn more about this story. That's why I am really thrilled to have Ted Christie's, the presidency of Spirit Airlines, here with us tonight, just a couple of days before Thursday's special shareholder meeting to decide on the sale to Frontier. Mr. Christie, welcome to Mad Money. Honored to have you. Thanks a lot, Jim. Great to be here. All right. So, Ted, in your words... Tell us why uh, someone who uh, has spirit should vote for an admittedly dollar lower bid than the JetBlue offer. Well, uh, first of all, it's it's an equity transaction with Frontier, which is going to make the appearances uh, look a little bit different than what JetBlue is proposing. But um, we're very excited about the Frontier transaction because it allows our 
um, our shareholders to participate in the industry recovery, uh, the post-pandemic lows where we sit today, plus a considerable amount of synergy between the two uh, businesses. And they've also included enough protection on the back end if something does happen. So it really covers all the aspects. On a pro forma basis, we think this could deliver north of $50 in value to our shareholders, which is well above where we are today, well above where JetBlue was, was thinking about us. And our board uh, focused on that and wanted to make sure they were delivering the upside to our shareholders. How much of your decision is because it would seem to be almost impossible for a JetBlue deal to get past this Justice Department? Well, when we heard from JetBlue three months ago, that was the first thing that came out of our mouths was, um, look, this is going to be a very, very high regulatory hurdle. Um, First of all, their, their strategy would be to remove seats from our airplanes, which is capacity constraint. That's kind of a no-no. Uh, and they justify the synergies in the transaction by raising fares and overlapping markets, which is another no-no. So those two things combined make it a very difficult tra- um, transaction to get done. But then you layer on top of that the fact that they're currently in a litigation with the Department of Justice over the Northeast Alliance with American and we viewed that as being um, almost a non-starter. So we asked them up front, look, we're going to need you to explain to us how you're going to get this thing done in order for us to justify the risks to our shareholders. And basically, they just kept throwing up walls and roadblocks every time we wanted to talk to them about it and refused to do anything to our satisfaction that would get the deal done. So we already had a bird in hand. We had a very accretive frontier transaction um, in front of us that we know delivers a lot of value, has a very positive regulatory uh, story attached to it, uh, and one that's going to be great for our team members as well. So um, our board did a careful review. We, we had a completely open process. Um, we made sure we had a level playing field across. We listened to all the proposals, and we've landed on um, viewing the frontier proposal as superior for all of those reasons. Okay, so now I want to quote uh, press release. Uh, From its latest bid last night, JetBlue says the entrenched spirit board is now claiming they have served their shareholders by approving an amended frontier transaction. Yet, in fact, they have never negotiated with us and have now favored a transaction that better serves frontiers controlling shareholders than spirit shareholders. Is it true that you've never negotiated with? No, all this name calling stuff is just silly. I mean, we have. Uh, this is a big public company with a um, with a very sophisticated board, and I know JetBlue has the same, and so does Frontier. And we're obviously in this for the best value that we can get for our shareholders, uh, but making sure we can get a transaction they get done. And throwing around name calling and doing all that stuff is just sand in the gears. But we, so we've you been did trying negotiate. to. You did negotiate. A- absolutely. We, okay. we listened to all of their proposals. We, we spent a lot of time with JetBlue talking about the regulatory narrative. What are the things that they were willing to do to convince us that they could actually get the deal approved? And despite the numerous requests for information on the Northeast Alliance, helping us understand how they might sell uh, the transaction as a high-cost airline buying a low-cost airline, we didn't get anything out of that that would convince us that, that it would get done at the end of the day. Now, did, did anyone read the Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Kanner's speech to the antitrust division uh, remarks to the State Bar Association on the 24th of, of uh, January? Well, no, we did. Well, um, it, it, it basically says that <laughs> it just says that, that JetBlue will not be able to buy Spirit. That's what that's about. He says you can't do... I mean, you can't remediate. I, I don't understand. I mean, look, I, I am telling you, I, I know, look, I was good at antitrust, but it was a long time ago. But when I read this speech, it's very clear that you win. 
that, look, they may decide they don't want any mergers. We know Mr. Cantor may do that. But this speech, which is his opening speech, just says that what JetBlue wants to do, he will kill, which means to me that both the lawyers and the advisors are simply oblivious to what this man wants, of which I am not because I'm Paul Weiss' client. Well, I have to agree. Um, you know, it seems uh, a bit naive to march into it saying we've got, you know, a similar regulatory backdrop between the two uh, transactions. And, you know, I think it's quite telling, actually, that up front, JetBlue and their, um, their counsel were telling us right away that they intended to get sued by the DOJ. I think right there, you, you know for a fact that they already know this is a deal that's going to be very, very difficult to get done. So, well, I mean, this is an illusory deal. I mean, to me, when I read this, it's three years well, of litigation there, and then Jim. JetBlue loses. <laughs> and then I'm trying to figure out what your airline's worth in three years of litigation. Now, look, I'm not a lawyer. Well, I have counsel. I didn't speak to them about this, but I just know enough. I mean, I wasn't born yesterday. This, their deal doesn't go through and people who have your stock get crushed. That's what has to happen. That's the way it works. Well, you're making all my points. That's what we're you worried about. You bet I am, because here. that's why I wanted you on, because I see what's happening here. And, you know, I didn't go I to college to get stupid. <laughs> well, I appreciate your enthusiasm and your passion, and we share it. Um, we're worried about the spirit shareholder and the risks that they would be put through over a protracted regulatory process with an eventual lawsuit. And the prize at the end is a reverse termination fee, which, by the way, now with the ticking fee and all that is largely sent directly to the shareholders. And guess what? We get the uh, obligation to pay taxes on the loan forgiveness. So it's actually worse. And, and I am concerned uh, on behalf of the business and on behalf of our shareholders. And our board was focused on that. And they spent a lot of time making sure that we had the right deal with Frontier. All right. Well, we do know that it's always possible that Mr. Cannon will say, listen, we're done approving deals. And that's true. But I think that the idea that uh, he has given a speech very clearly stating that he will not authorize any deal like JetBlue wants, and they go ahead with it, to me, is either naive or greed. But I don't like either. Ted Christie, president and CEO of Spirit Airlines, thank you for coming on and on the eve of a very important vote to tell your shareholders the truth. Great to talk to you, sir. Thanks. Man Money's back in for the break. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Tell the lightning comes I'm going to start with Jay in Florida. Jay. Hey, Jim. Nice to hear from you. I'm a first-time caller, long-time listener. First-time, long-time. Like- Pardon me? First-time, long-time. Yeah, right. You said it. Uh, I've got a stock that I've been buying for years. It's an old-line company, and I'd like to get your opinion on whether I should buy, sell, or hold, and it's AT&T. That is a distinct hold. If it were at 18, it's a buy. If it was 23, it's a sell. And thank you for being first time, long time. Kenny in Maryland. Kenny. Hey, Jim. Kenny from Maryland. With uh, Germany getting closer to legalizing cannabis, I'd like your opinion on Tilray. Thank you. 
Tilray is a total spec of which I'm not going to get bet against right now because it's too low. And I do believe that Erwin Simon must have something up the sleeve or he would not take that job with that stock that low. Let's go to Joe in New Jersey. Joe. Hello, Kramer. Thank you for having me on your show. The chill says hi. What's happening? Uh, yes, uh, I've owned Dow Chemical stock for about uh, six months now, and with the consumer ship to services, should I still hold on to it? Okay, well, they're just pummeling this stock, and Fiddling's doing a good job. It's at 52. I think that it yields five. I would buy, if I wanted to buy 200 shares, I'd buy 100 here, and then i wait till 45. Vince in Illinois. Vince. Hi, Jim Booyah from Vince from Illinois. What's the matter, Vince? I've been watching your show for a long time, investment club member and a first-time caller. That's great that you called. We love you and love your show. Thank you. I have a 500 of SLP simulations plus. They used to be around $80. Last year and now it's at the 50. What is your opinion? Buy well, they, more they actually ma- no, 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 no. They actually make money, so I'm not going to tell you to sell it. But it's much too rich a stock for my taste, and I can't there recommend it. I need to go to Richard Nevada. Richard. Yes, sir. Mr. Kramer, it's a pleasure hearing your voice on my phone. Oh, Rich, so, same. Right back at you, Richard. What's up? Listen, um... C3AI, buy, sell, hold. Man, what a stinker that's been. I mean, that's been one of the worst stocks in the market, and yet Tom Siebel, who started, is one of the best. So let's get Tom on the show. I mean, honestly, Tom, you know, this one you gaff people on, and I know you're a really straight shooter. I've known you for uh, two decades. Come on the show and explain us why this thing should be bought. I want to go to Christopher in Colorado, please. Christopher. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Christopher. Why does Rio Tinto get so little respect? It because people think five. they were going into recession, and you're supposed to sell Rio Tinto in recession. I, on the other hand, want to take the other side of the trade and buy Rio Tinto right here. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, there's a lesson for this market that was learned in 1987. Make sure you take notes next. Look, I don't blame anyone for being bored to tears. By the way, we obsess over the Federal Reserve. For the longest time, I didn't get it either. When I first got to Goldman Sachs 40 years ago, oh my, 40 years ago, I only wanted to talk about stocks with consistently great earnings. You know, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, old Gillette, Heinz. Sure enough, when I started my own hedge fund in 87, I immediately purchased those all-weather stocks. And what happens? We had a Fed tightening cycle because the economy had gotten so hot. Next thing you know, all my favorite stocks getting hammered beyond recognition. I couldn't figure out what the heck was going wrong. Did people stop drinking soda? Did they stop shaving? Maybe washing their hair, brushing their teeth? Did the Japanese suddenly come up with a better ketchup? It was incredible. I knew my goose was cooked. Couldn't figure out why. I was able early enough to pull out of all these stocks. In fact, we got lucky, sold everything right before the great crash of 87, when the market lost nearly a quarter of its value. Single session. Before then, Fed Chief Alan Greenspan said he'd provide all the liquidity we needed. Fed speak for the sell-off ends now. Thank heavens I was in cash. Now, but I studied that period where I was wrong endlessly to figure out how I could be so, just be so oblivious. Why should these consistent stocks with no exposure to the business cycle go down when the economy was going great guns. Of course, that was the problem. 
The economy was hot. So Wall Street only wanted the cyclicals, the boom and bust stocks. All consistent defensive names like Coca-Cola became sources of funds for those stocks. Something like Coke may be a company for all seasons, but that doesn't mean it's, all, it's a stock for all seasons. Ever since then, I've tried to run a balanced portfolio that doesn't have too much exposure to the steady eddy consumer staples or the boom and bust cyclicals. The difficulty comes when you're trying to figure out how far along we are in a rate hike cycle. Can you jump the gun, so to speak, and buy cyclical stocks that are depressed because they're in the Fed's crosshairs? And that's what I saw today when an analyst actually had the temerity to recommend the home builders, even though we're still near the beginning of the tightening cycle. To me, the only thing dumber than buying the slow and steady staples in a red-hot economy is buying the boom and bust cyclicals when the economy's slowing. And make no mistake, the Fed is deliberately engineering a slowdown right now. If you buy the home builders here, you're fighting the Fed, and that's a recipe for, let's say, disaster. As we get further into the tightening cycle, that calculus will change, but we definitely aren't there yet. Remember, we're not only trying to figure out how much a company can earn. We also need to figure out what Wall Street will pay for those earnings. What's the multiple in those earnings? When it comes to the home builders, I think the price to earnings multiples or PEs are a lot higher than they look because the earnings estimates are too high. You better believe those numbers will come down as the Fed keeps tightening, jacking up mortgage rates. So you need to know where you are in the business cycle. And that means, well, what it means for your favorite stocks. Otherwise, if you're oblivious to this stuff like I was in 1987, your portfolio is going to turn into roadkill. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.